read a story this week of an older couple that was having some problems remembering things. And so they uh, went to their doctor to get it checked out and make sure nothing was wrong with the both of them. And they arrived at the doctor's office, explained their problems. They were having trouble with their memory, just remembering small things throughout the day. After checking the couple out, the doctor tells them that they were physically okay, but that they might want to start uh, writing things down to help them remember, taking notes to help them you know, jog their memory throughout the, the day. The couple thanked the doctor and they left. Uh, later that night, while watching TV, the elderly gentleman got up from his chair and asked the wife, or, uh, are you okay? Uh, I'm going to head into the kitchen. Uh, she, she says, well, yeah, actually, uh, could you get me a bowl of ice cream? And so he says, Sure. And she asks him, don't you think you should write this down, as the doctor said, so that it will help you remember? He says, no, I can remember that. You want ice cream. She says, well, I'd also like some strawberries on top. Maybe you should write that down so that you won't forget. He says, no, no, I can, I can remember that. And she goes, well, I also want whipped cream on it, so uh, maybe, maybe with all of that you ought to write it down so that you don't forget. A bit irritated at this point, he finally says, I don't need to write that down. I can remember that. He fumes into the kitchen. Twenty minutes later, he comes out. And he returns and hands her a plate of bacon and eggs. And she, staring at the plate for a moment, looking a bit frustrated, says, I knew you were going to mess this up. You should have wrote it down. You forgot my toast. <laughs> Our memories, friends, uh, can be a problem. Uh, I see some of you wives elbowing your husbands. And so men admit it. You forget things. But ladies, if you're honest, you forget things as well. We all have this problem. Selective memory, maybe, right? The things you want to remember, you remember. The human mind, though, is a remarkable organ. Scientists and doctors tell you that we only use a percentage of our brain's total capacity and ability to function, yet uh, with as, as powerful an organ as our brains are, we have this problem of remembering things. Or to put it another way, we all tend to forget things, even important things. Part of the problem is that we have so much to remember. I mean, think about our our lives, especially in the day and age we live in, that media, you turn on the television and you're bombarded, the airwaves are bombarded with facts and data and claims that you remember, whether you want to or not. Um, then we have our, our social security numbers and PIN numbers and ATM numbers and security alarm codes and phone numbers and important dates, uh, due dates at work for things when they're due, uh, your, your events that you're attending, uh, birthdays and anniversaries. Many a spouse has paid the heavy toll for forgetting an anniversary. Uh, many an employee has suffered embarrassment for forgetting a deadline or an appointment. Our cluttered minds pose a, a unique danger for our lives. Having a, a cluttered mind can cause us to forget things, even the most important things, the things that matter most, including our walk with Christ, including what God's done on our behalf. And so in our text today, the Israelites, as you've already heard read, cross the Jordan River. And when they do so, that's not the end of the, the text. It's not the end for them, crossing the Jordan. But they erect these, they, they select 12 stones and erect this uh, memorial in Gilgal for future, for future Israelite generations to remember what's happened there. Um, an amazing miracle that we see in the text, that Israel crossed the Jordan River on dry ground, reminiscent of what happened at the Red Sea with Moses. Remembering this miracle would cause them to reflect on the unstoppable power of God. It would cause them to reaffirm God's sovereignty, that he's the one in charge of their lives. He's the one orchestrating the details of their lives. It would cause them to, to have a firm and steady, convinced, life-altering fear of God as they moved into the promised land and, and fought against the Canaanites. 
So in light of this reality in the text, how should the work of God be remembered today? How should we reflect on God's work in our lives? How do we read a text like this and remember what God did in their lives and reflect upon it? So uh, this morning, simple outline, we're going to walk through the two chapters together. Six theological truths, six truths about God that we see in Israel's um, experience, but that also we can apply to our lives as well. So number one. God's work is to be perceived. God's work is to be perceived. Look at verses 1 through 6. Then Joshua rose in the morning and set out from Shethim. And they came to the Jordan and all the people of Israel lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went throughout the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know where you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. And they took the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Here we have various uh, preparations that are being made for Israel to enter into the land. Uh, the preparation in all of this is, is, is pointing them. It's, everything is orchestrated in these verses at showing them that God is the one at work among them. And let me show you what I mean here. Uh, first, notice the centrality of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, for those of you that would be unfamiliar, uh, God was talking about the Ark of the Covenant long before Indiana Jones began to search for it. Uh, this is also not the ark that you see in Genesis that Noah built. This is a box. It's a box constructed by Israel back at Sinai, Mount Sinai. Uh, it, was, uh, uh, it was placed in the Holy of Holies as they, as they traveled and, and then built the temple. It served as a, as a physical place where God would speak to Israel through Moses. It was the location that that happened at. Uh, the original tablets of the law that God gave Moses were placed in it. Uh, it went before Israel. It guided Israel through their wandering years in the wilderness. It would eventually be kept in Solomon's temple once the, uh, the Israelites are in the promised land and, and construct that temple. It was considered by Israel to be the most uh, sacred object in all of their possession. Why was that? Because it was a sign, it was a symbol for them of God's presence among his people. It was a picture that, 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 that the God of the universe is residing among us. It wasn't an idol to be worshipped, because God strictly forbids that, but it was a symbol for them of God's presence. It represented that, that Yahweh was among them. And it first appears in our text this morning in verse 3. As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, you shall set out from your place and follow it. Here's what's incredible. It's mentioned 17 more times throughout the rest of our text today. There's something important here. The writer is refusing to let us lose sight of the Ark of the Covenant. It met Israel at every turn in the text before us today. It's going to meet us as we read through these two chapters. It's going to meet us at every turn. It reminds us that the God of Israel is leading his people into Canaan. That God cut off the flooding waters of the Jordan and he held them back with his hand as a result of the presence of the ark and as a result of his presence. This whole affair is God's battle. It's all his plan. It's all his battle. And really Israel is just serving as a spectator. They're just watching God do his thing. That's what we're to see here in, in the frequency of how often the presence of the Lord is recognized in the ark of the covenant in this text. Well, how else is the Lord's work to be perceived? Well, from a distance. Look at verse 4. There should be a distance between you and it, that's the Ark of the Covenant, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know where you shall go. 
The instruction from God is this. Yes, follow in obedience. Yes, unquestioned obedience. Take the steps God telling you to, but don't be too hasty. Don't be too hasty so that you don't observe God working in your midst. Let him go before you and even gives him the distance so that you can see him at work, so that you can know your next steps. This is uncharted territory for you. We do that, right? We, we, we get our sights set on something, and here's the thing. It, it can even be something that God has made clear to us. This is made clear to them. We get our sights set on something that God has given us at some point in our past, and we're fixed on it, and that goal or that task, that agenda becomes all we see. It's sort of like we get tunnel vision, and, and that thing we're so focused on is all that we see around us, and we miss what God's doing. And oftentimes we need to step back, and, and, and not maybe physically, but uh, metaphorically, and see what God's doing. Look at, at the bigger picture and what God's orchestrating in our lives. It's his battle. Our lives are his. He's the one orchestrating these things. So he tells them to, to observe from a distance, but then he also commands them to, to observe with the proper attitude. And all of this is pointing to them being able to see and perceive God at work. If you continue in verse 5, Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Consecrate yourselves. What does this mean? What, what, what is he commanding them to do here? What other times in the Old Testament... This meant that, that Israel was to prepare themselves by washing their clothes, uh, abstaining from sexual relations, uh, fasting, uh, confessing their sins. There, was, there were these processes uh, that, that Israel was commanded to do in big moments like this or in festivals or seasons of uh, feasts. Basically, they're preparing themselves. And in the church today, we would say, prepare your hearts. Uh, set aside. Be intentional in preparing yourself for what God's about to do. So why all this fuss about the right distance from the ark, all this fuss about having the right attitude, consecrating yourselves, why does all this preparation matter? Because it's crucial that Israel recognize that what's about to happen is God's work. They perceive the reality that, that, that unless they prepare themselves, they could see these exact same events and not understand their true value or significance. They could see the exact same crossing of the Jordan and think that it was somehow their thing that they accomplished. They're consecrating themselves. They're preparing themselves. They're distancing themselves a bit from it so they can see God show off and do his thing. Well, what about us? You may not be standing in a situation where God's about to cut a literal path through a literal river and lead you across into some new and foreign land. But do you prepare yourself? Do you expect, do you anticipate seeing God at work and watching him uh, do things in your lives? I mean, even in our public worship, do you prepare yourself uh, for Sunday morning or is this just something you get up and do? Uh, you, you roll out of bed and in time to make, get, make it here just a few minutes, maybe before or after the service starts. Davis in his commentary says this, If we're not impressed with the grandeur of the living God in public worship, could it be because we've not prepared ourselves to see him as such? We have tools on our, even on our church website that would help you uh, engage and, and prepare your heart for the text, for the worship that we're going to be singing. Uh, those are available to you to, 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 to meditate, but, but all of that's just a tool. What really matters is that you're intentional. Sometime before this moment, coming in and, and getting on your face before God and saying, God, I want to see you today. I expect to meet with you. Would you change my heart? I'm preparing. I'm, I'm consecrating this time for you that you would do a, a work in my life that would forever change me. But not just in our corporate worship gatherings. What about your everyday life? What about the day-to-day? -day? Could it be that we don't see God at work in our lives because we have failed to prepare ourselves and, and expect that, right? 
Even tomorrow, whether we go back into our workplaces and our homes and our neighborhoods, that we don't expect to see God working. We don't wake up tomorrow morning and go, God, I want to see you do something today. Use me in some kind of incredible way. Change me in some kind of way today to look more like Jesus. For Israel, it was important to see that God was working, that his work would be perceived among them this, this whole day as they moved into the promised land. Number two, God's leader is honored. God's leader is honored. Look at verses 7 through 9. You've heard it read already by Ben this morning, but let's walk through it again. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the, in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that I, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of of the Lord your God. Notice these two bookends in our text today. Look at verse 7 that we just read. Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel. God speaking to Joshua. And then chapter 4 verse 14. Chapter 4 verse 14. On that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. So you have these bookends here. That's why we put chapters 3 and 4 together. And we're studying them in one Sunday. Because God in the beginning verse 7 says I'm going to do this. And then in chapter 4 verse 14 I did this. <laughs> I exalted uh, Joshua in the sight of all Israel. Given the crisis of Moses' death, the leader that they had known for decades, the, the leadership transition that was taking place, the change that was taking place, the overwhelming task of moving into this land of giants, that was an act of faith. It was vitally important for Joshua to have confidence in God, to, to know that God could do this through him and through the people of Israel, and what God would do through them as, as, as he was their new leader. We may not initially see why this is important in our context today. Why, why is it that, that validation of leadership in our lives is important in the church, in our homes, in our world, in our workplace? Its importance, though, is obvious when a confidence in leadership is lacking, right? When, when there, there's no confidence that God is moving, that he's working, that he's doing anything among his people. I could see how this would seem a little self-serving for me to get up here and try to make the application that as the church, we're embodying Israel, and I'm your Joshua, and so just follow me, right? So I'm not going to do that today. That's tempting, though. You think it would work? <laughs> but I do want to tell you this morning, church family, that God has graced us. He has given us elders here at Poplar Spring. You have five of them. You have six deacons that God has given you. And I can personally attest that God's hand is upon these men, that as these men lead us in different areas of our church and shepherd different members of our congregation, these men are faithful to the Lord. These men love you. These men pray for you. They desire that you walk closely with the Lord. I can say with confidence that God's hand is upon these men and you can follow these men with confidence that God has given you elders to shepherd and to lead here at Poplar Spring. And you don't have to doubt or question that. God's, God's good to us in that way. He's given us pastors and deacons for that purpose so God's affirming Joshua as their leader he's going to do that in an incredible way in a moment as he stops as he dams up the river and places his seal of competence on Joshua that the things that Joshua's been saying actually come about and they cross the river that's going to give Israel incredible confidence it's going to do the same for Joshua that God's doing what he said he would do number three God's power is assured God's power is assured. Look at verses 10 through 13. And Joshua said, here's how you shall know that the living God is among you. Here's how you'll know. Here's how you'll know, Israel, 
and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the, uh, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. So remember the, the problem all the way back in Numbers. The problem wasn't the, the, the river. The river, I mean, that, that, we'll figure out a way to get across the river, right? The, the problem was once you get into the land and all these giants that are going to destroy us. That's what the report they came back with. So you want to know how you're going you're gonna to take care of all of that and all of that without fail, God says, is going gonna, is gonna to play out before you. Verse 11, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, each uh, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. God's assuring his power to Israel. Think about the logic behind these verses here. Think about what God's saying to them. If God can tame a raging river, if he can stop up a river miraculously, then he can repel the attacking Amorites. If God can stop the Jordan River, then he can put an end to the Girgashites. They're not a problem. If he can get you into the land, then he can certainly give you the land. He's using this, this argument. Paul uses the same type of argument in the New Testament. Paul in Romans Chapter 8, verse 32, Paul says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friend, you are so loved this morning that God gave you his only son. He would not even spare his own son. Do you think that he's, not going, that he's going to withhold from you uh, his grace, his mercy, his, his pleasure in some kind of childish way? Like he's going to lord it over you and, and not love you well after he's given his own son to secure your redemption? This is what Paul's saying. The Israelites have been rescued from Egypt. They've, they've crossed the Red Sea miraculously. They, they are about to cross the Jordan miraculously. He's preserved them in the wilderness for these 40 years. They should be well acquainted with God's power. How much more than for us? We've seen the cross and resurrection. We can look back in the timeline of history in our rearview mirror and we can see the empty tomb. We can see a hill called Calvary where he, he gave his life for us. God's power over sin, God's power over death. It should color the horizon of everything we see in the rest of our lives. From the time that we've trusted Christ until the time that he calls us home, that truth should guide us in every decision we make, in every uh, circumstance that comes into our life, whether good or bad. God's not merely a three-letter word that we use in Christian vocabulary. He's not like some honorary member of our club, and that's it. He's the living God of the universe who intervenes and works and comes and saves. Indeed, we can say with verse 11, He is the God of all the earth. That's who we worship, and He's affirming his sovereignty is affirming his power over our lives and over everything. And he's doing that for them as well, even in the things that they fear most, the, the giants and the land that they would come up against. Number four. Number four. God's method seems strange. God's method seems strange. Look at verses 14, 14 through 17. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people... And as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark uh, had come, uh, were dipped into the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside uh, Zarethan, and those flowing toward, uh, down toward the Sea of Arabah, the sea salt, 
and the Salt Sea were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite of Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Sometimes God's method just seems strange to us. It's not the way we would do it. It's not the way we would have planned it. It's not the way we would have orchestrated these events to happen. Especially, and you see this in the text when you look at verse 15. You look at the very end of verse 15. And if you have an ESV Bible, uh, maybe some of your other translations as well, there, there's some parentheses at the end of verse 15. It says, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. Why would it say that there? Why does it give us that parenthesis? Why is it this frustrating little statement, this river update in the midst of a miracle story? Why would would the writer choose to do that? Well, it's on purpose. Let me show you why. Joshua has just assured Israel that they would would move into the Jordan. And as soon as the priest's feet hit the water, it's going to stop flowing. It's going to stand up. It's going to stop so that the nation can cross. And as soon as the ark-toting priest stepped in, it does exactly that. You can can see the actualization of these events that Joshua's predicted starting in verse 14. So before that point, it's just prediction. This is what God said he was going to do. Verse 14, you watch this chain of events, and it's given to us with expectancy. The writer's giving these events and very detailed description of them uh, so that it calls us to the edge of our seats, so that we're ready to hear this, this next line, the next line, the next line, and the writer's creating tension. What's going to happen? Is it really going to happen as as God told Joshua and as Joshua commanded to the people? Look at verse 14. You you see these real quick events given to you. The people set out from their tents. Again, verse 14, the priest bearing the ark went before the people. Verse 15, they come down to the bank of the Jordan. Again, in verse 15, uh, the feet of the priest bearing the ark uh, dipped into the edge of the water. So in, in, in two verses, you're giving these four real quick descriptions of what's happening, all these painstaking details. And then without finishing the story, without telling you what happens next, the writer goes into a weather report. <laughs> look, at, look, at, look at the parentheses. Now the Jordan overflows its banks throughout the time of harvest. Sort of like a 1950s uh, television drama. I wasn't alive then, but this is what I'm told. The, the, the hero and the heroine are, are closing in for a final climactic kiss at the end, and, and that's about to happen, and then it's interrupted with a Rice Krispies commercial. It's like, what's going to happen? And then, then, then all of a sudden, nothing happens. There's a purpose here, though. This river update helps us to appreciate the miracle, not from man's perspective of his own need, But from God's perspective, just how incredible this feat actually was. God says, not only am I going to do it, I'm going to do it in a way that that, that blows everyone's mind. I'm going to do it in a way which no one's going to be able to miss, that it was actually a divine act, that it was a miracle that this actually could even happen. To see that, though, I'm going to give you a bit of background, because I think this is why the weather report's in there. They would have gotten this. We kind of missed this. Uh, The Jordan River Valley, between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, it varies in breadth from 3 to 14 miles. Uh, the floodplain that would have accompanied this river that would have uh, went on each side of these overflowing river bank- banks uh, in this valley ranged between 200 yards and a mile wide. Think about how much our uh, little, little stream here, our creek, rises when we have a hurricane like Hurricane Matthew. This was a, a, at some places a mile wide. And in that, that swampy area, it's packed with tangled brush and undergrowth and briars uh, we picture, I think, sometimes when we read stories like this, growing up in the church, we have the little, little, little pictures that we hang on the wall, and we picture this like nice, clean-cut river that's like somehow mowed all the way to the edge, and it's just this clean-cut thing, and then God divides it, and they walk through. 
But the reality is this, the scene before them was more like a marshy, swampy jungle that, that, that would have encompassed the banks on, on well on each side of the, of the river channel. And then you get to the river channel itself, and it's somewhere between 90 and 100 feet abroad, ranging in depth from 3 feet to 12 feet in places. And the current was strong. If you read about the, the geographical landscape, the topography there, uh, this current is strong because there's a drop in elevation 40 feet per mile as you approach the, the Sea of Galilee. And so this river current is a, is a swift, flowing river. And then, So you put it all together, and what you see is that this, this scenario, what the Israelites faced in the springtime, in the harvest, was no calm stream. It was a raging torrent surrounded on each side by tangled, uh, swamp-like marshes. Herein lies the reason you have the parentheses at the end of verse 15. When was it that God led Israel through the Jordan? At precisely the time of year when the task looked absolutely impossible. At the time of year you would go, hold on, wait, wait. <laughs> We've been camping out for 40 years in the wilderness, and now we're, this season, this month, this time of year is when we're going to cross it? Exactly. Why does the God of the Bible insist on fording a river at the most difficult time? Because he delights in showing his power in the face of our utter helplessness. He loves to display his power and his glory when we think nothing can be done. He wants us to see that we contribute nothing to our deliverance. He's the one who delivers so what are you enduring this week, this month, this year? Something that makes absolutely no sense to you. Something that if you would have planned out and charted your life, you would have certainly not included this thing, right? Perhaps God has brought you to this place this week, this month, this year, so that when you make it through it, so that when you endure it, so that when you're not overwhelmed and washed away by the torrent, it's only because of his power and his grace, and your life is a testimony to that. This is his way of teaching you not to rely on your own ability, but to rely on his power, his strength. Number five. Number five, God's goodness is remembered. We see this really in two places. Again, we're moving into chapter four, so kind of bookends for us in the chapter. There's a lot of repetition that happens in chapter four, so we're going to read most of it, but not all of it. You really see it in, 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 chapters, in chapter four, verses one through 10, and at the end of the chapter in 21 through 24. So we'll read those two bookends and see how God is commanding his people to remember him. He's, he's provoking them to remember. Um, there are instructions here about 12 stones. Read with me in verse, uh, in verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. And when the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. And then Joshua called 12 uh, the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, each man, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God in the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of tribes and the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And then in verses 8 through 10, you see really a summary of 8 through 10 in verse 8, the first part of verse 8. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded. 
Look at the truth operating behind these eight verses. The greatest enemy before Israel, not giants. It wasn't a river. God's, God's got that. God's, that's completely and firmly under his control. The greatest enemy of Israel was their own forgetfulness. And it's sort of like in a marriage. The immediate threat in, in many of our marriages, in most of our marriages perhaps, the, the immediate threat in our marriage is not infidelity. Though that may be the case for some. The real threat for most is the, the real and slow process of forgetting. That, that you gradually fail to remember the preciousness of the spouse that God has blessed you with. And in that callousness, in that coldness, it leads to worse and worse uh, sins and decisions. And this is what God's reminding Israel of here. He reminds them, you must remember what God has done. These stones will be a visual aid for you. These stones will actually prepare your heart to, to proclaim this truth for generations. And the, the greatest threat among you, Israel, is not what, what anyone can do to you or what your, your circumstances may do to you, but it's forgetting. It's forgetting me because I'm the one that's doing this anyways. And these stones will actually be an aid for you in your parenting as well. Let's skip down now to chapter 4, verses uh, 20, uh, 21 through 24. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord uh, your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth, here's the point, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. The next generation needs to know of God's faithfulness. Those that will come after you, your children and your children's children, they need to know of God's faithfulness to you. Don't let them forget it. Don't let this moment pass. You can picture it, right? Like 15 years have went by and an Israelite father is, is taking his six-year-old son on a nice little hiking or camping trip and they go to Gilgal National Park and they're enjoying their time and they're just being out in God's creation and the son uh, spots a large pile of stones and he looks up at his dad and he says, hey dad, what are these for? That's it. That's your moment. That's what he's put you here for. The son's natural God-given curiosity becomes an occasion for communicating the grace of God to him. Those stones, son, are there for a purpose. Those were designed to, to do this, that God would give me an opportunity to remind you of what our God's done for us. Think about the implications for this, church. Think about the implications for us in this. And if God insists that Israel remember this day, if he's, if he's actually insisting on it such that he gets them to build a memorial to remember this day, that it implies that this event is unique and that God doesn't usually work with such visible, raw displays of power, right? Does that make sense? If God did something of this magnitude every fifth Wednesday, then why would Israel need to memorialize River Jordan Day, right? Does that make sense? This is, this is a unique moment. This is a big moment where God's displaying his power in a very visible and raw way. Well, apparently, this sort of miracle would be infrequent. So don't miss this. So God's standard method of keeping people's faithfulness is not by frequent dazzling displays of miracles, but by faithful witnesses that will teach others about the previous acts of God. Does that make sense? I'm going to read that again because there's, there's application we're moving into for us here. God's standard method of keeping people's faithfulness over years and throughout a given generation is not by dazzling displays of miracles, but by faithful people, faithful witnesses that will teach others about the previous acts of God. And this pattern carries over for us in the church today. We remember Christ's broken body and his shed blood by talking about it. 
It's not something that should, that should be off of our lips. We should never tire of hearing what Christ has done, that he's secured our redemption on a hill called Calvary. We should speak this truth to one another. We should recount the gospel to our kids. That's what, that's what he was giving them this memorial for. God forbid that the kids would grow up here at Poplar Spring and be gospelless. If anything, we should make sure that that's a priority, that our kids know the gospel. They can rehearse it to one another. They can speak it to one another. It's what we're leaving them with. It's the hope that they have. We've taken communion like we did last week for this very purpose of remembering what Christ has done. He's given us his broken body and his shed blood. And we give that to others as they come along behind us and as we live and do life day to day. We share our stories. We share our personal stories of redemption, our testimonies with one another. This is how God saved me. This is where I was at before. This is where I'm at now. And it's only by God's grace. We share the great news that God has been our victor. Number six, God's hand is evident. We see that God's hand is evident in verses 18 and 19. So skipping back up, we've, we've read the two bookends of what he's doing there what he will do and how he does it with the memorial stones. Let's get back up to the middle, verses 18 and 19, and notice the evidence of God's hand at work. Verse 18. And when the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground, and the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. Because of the timing of this event, the way that everything works out here in the narrative, there's no doubt that the stoppage of this river was God's work. They went in, the river stopped. They came out, the river flowed. Clearly this is not coincidence. Clearly this is not just some uh, random act where they, they happened across at a good time or something. Now, our world is so quick to chalk things up to coincidence or chance. Wish one another good luck. God is clearly involved in orchestrating these events. He's the one moving and working in every detail. Then you get to verse 19 and you see it again, that his hand is clearly evident in the text. The people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. Why this little note about a date? Why is this added here? Is there any sense in which this, this mention of a date here is sort of like the weather update from chapter 3 verse 15? It seems small, but it actually has deep significance. You're on to something. Yeah, you're on to something. At least uh, the, the few commentaries that I read point this out, um, that 40 years earlier on this day, 40 years before, Israel had begun to prepare uh, for going out of Egypt for the Exodus by setting apart the Passover lamb. Right? You remember going back to Exodus, God told them to take this lamb and spread its blood above, above the doorpost. What a cool picture this is. What an incredible picture is. Like this day that they're, that they're doing this marked the beginning of their redemption, that God would lead them from slavery, that he would bring them out of the land of Egypt. And this day is also marking the completion of their redemption, that they've crossed the river into the land that he told them that he, that he would give them. He's accomplished all that he said he would. And if you go all the way back to Genesis, to his promise to Abraham, he promised people and he promised land. And he's given people, for some time they've been a great nation, and now he's given land. Everything that he said would come about has come about. God is completely faithful. And he's written his faithfulness across yet another date on theirs and our calendar. Showing himself to them. Israel had been a slave, now Israel's an heir. Israel had been in bondage under a, an Egyptian taskmaster, and now they're a people of their own land because God has given them such rich grace and, and, and mercy. 
So when I think in our growth groups this week, discuss with one another in your, in your conversations in Sunday school and in the hallway, around the, around the coffee table, in the fellowship hall, discuss with one another, how has God had his hand evident in your life? How has he been working in your life this week? And it's clear that he's had his hand on you. Like there's no confusing it with something else. Like it's God working. There are points. Think about even, even as, as we're in conversation and fellowship with one another, what are the major marker moments for you where it was a defining turning point in your life where God's power was unmistakable? And in your story, in your testimony, you can look back and say, that was a moment like that. Everything shifted at that moment, and it's because God did something incredible in my life, and it's clear to me that that was what was taking place. John Piper says this, don't question in the dark what God has revealed to you in the light. What he's saying is this, and I think it goes right into our text. You may think life's okay right now. Everything may be going okay, and, and nothing awful is happening. Place some memorials firmly in your heart and mind. Mark this day or mark this time where you knew on October 28th that God was in control, and he had brought you thus far, and that he was the one leading you and guiding you, and he hadn't left you to this point. Mark this day as a time like that. You may be on the other side of the spectrum and say, well, my life seems to be crumbling right before my very eyes. Everything's going wrong and nothing is right. Go back to a moment like that. Go back in your own heart and mind to a moment where you knew that, that, that God was, was true and he was faithful and he was leading you, that he had saved you. And remember that time that God, if he would not even spare his own son for you, how loved are you? Proclaim the truth of Matthew 7. Matthew 7 verse 11 if you, if you then, who are evil, know how to good, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? That might be where you're at today. God, I don't know what the end of this looks like. I can't see what the end of this looks like. It's dark right now, and I need your mercy. I need you to give some, some confidence, some assurance, some grace to me in this moment to walk through what you've laid before me. He's a faithful God to do that. He will be there. Another gift that God has given us to remember, to memorialize, to, to, to reflect on how good he's been is the gift of music. It's a tool that he's given us to sing, to rehearse, to lodge the truths of God into our heart, to teach to our kids. He's given us that gift. And so as Michael comes and we get to sing, as we stand and proclaim these truths together in song, let, that, let the Spirit of God use that truth, even through the gift of music, to remind you of how good he's been to you, to remind you of his faithfulness in your life. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for your faithfulness that we see your hand at work all around us. And even when times are dark and when times are uncertain and when we fear, we can know that you're good and you're faithful. Help us to even right now as we reflect on the text to, to go back in our own lives and have these memorials in our own minds and our hearts of where you were at, at work, where we can clearly see that you were molding us, shaping us, leading us into another phase of our life. Help us to have confidence in this, this morning as, we, as we're reminded in the text that you were doing this for Israel. We give you our hearts, Jesus. We give you our times. We pray by your spirit that you would form Christ in each and every person. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.